Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. All right, good morning and welcome to Counterpoints. We have a truly spectacular show today, don't we, Emily? That was as enthusiastic it's as just, Saga, really but at a lower volume. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. It's going to be amazing. No, uh, Joe Biden has said that he has decided how he's going to respond uh, to the uh, Iraqi militia attack on uh, U.S. troops that were, for some reason, in Jordan, reservists, mm. for some reason, mm. in Jordan, uh, which, through our own uh, blunders, ended up killing uh, three service members. Biden is now saying he's going to respond. He has not done so as as we go to uh, go to air yet. We're going to talk about the kind of the propaganda war that's going on in the U.S. media around both the uh, October seventh uh, atrocities as well as the atrocities that have been carried out. Uh, since then. Uh, what else we got? Yeah, because you and your colleagues have a really interesting story. Stay tuned for this about what happened inside the New York Times mm-hmm. with an episode of The Daily related to the conflict in Israel yeah. and Palestine. So I'm excited to get into that. Ryan, the squad is having a really bad week. And as our resident expert, actually not even our res- resident expert, the media's the resident media's expert yeah. on the squad, we're going to talk uh, to you about some, you know, maybe blunders or investigations between Ilhan Omar, uh, Cory Bush, and Jamal Bowman. Yeah, it's been a scan- hell of a week. Scandals are hitting three of the six members of the squad. And I kind of ginned this up myself so that I could kind of promote my book a little bit longer. Devious. That, I re- it, was, it was pretty clever. I instigated a Department of Justice. <laughs> 
uh, investigation into Cori Bush. You filed the complaint. I mistranslated Ilhan Omar's speech before a, a group of Somali Americans uh, in Minnesota, and I dug up Jamal Bowman's old 9-11 uh, poem. Well, you uh, actually had that already, though, because yeah, you read just, it often. Yeah, one, but I held it back just stay so I could pu push the book a little bit more. I was gonna say, if you stay tuned for anything today, none Jamal of that was true, Bowman's but those are the scandals poem. that we're going to talk about. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get into a clip of <laughs> Republican Congresswoman Maria Alvaro Salazar, who's from Miami area, getting grilled in an interview. And this is a clip, it was going pretty viral, but it also speaks to some much broader issues in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned for that as well. And finally, we're going to play a clip of E. Jean Carroll on Rachel Maddow's show. Uh, again, <laughs> that is, was super viral uh, for some really, I think, bad reasons. Obviously, Trump got hit with an $83 million payment. So E. Jean Carroll, was discussing, you know, what she's uh, planning to do with some of the money. And I think, Ryan, her comments might, uh, as you could see on her lawyer's face, we'll get into this, but they might yeah. bear, uh, they might have some some effect on the case itself because Trump is appealing. And if, if we have time, we're going to get into both the, uh, the, the new sanctions that the State Department slapped on Venezuela and how those uh, contrast with the lack of sanctions placed on, on Pakistan, despite the fact that uh, Pakistani uh, secret courts uh, just sentenced Imran Khan uh, for a second time in just as many days, this time the first sentence was 10 years, next, next trumped-up sentence was 14 years, uh, State Department completely fine with that. Uh, State Department has a problem when it happens to Venezuela. If we don't have time to get to that in this uh, two-hour show, uh, we'll do something extra and catch it later. Yeah, we have a clip of Ryan, actually. Yes, I pressed the State, State Department, Department on, on that. Let's start with President Biden discussing Iran yesterday. Here's this clip from Joe Biden outside the White House. You hold respons them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Well, we'll have that discussion. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Okay, so we also have a clip from the Pentagon responding to some similar questions. Let's roll A2 here. I wouldn't say that the conflict is spreading in that we've seen over 100 attacks on U.S. forces, unfortunately, over 100 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria and, of course, now in Jordan. Um, we don't want to see a widening of this conflict. We don't see this conflict widening as it still remains contained to Gaza. But this attack was certainly escalatory in that it killed three service members, three of our U.S. service members. And um, as the president has said, uh, we don't see conflict. We don't want to see a, widen, widen, a widening of a regional war, um, but we will respond at a time and place of our choosing. It's not spreading when mm -hmm. troops literally have died in another country. Yeah. Well, again, but they've also been launching these attacks since October 17th. And again, we can't discount the fact that these attacks are incredibly dangerous put our service members at risk, but they have not, uh, up until yesterday, inflicted lethal harm. Um, they have been predominantly minor injuries and minor in, uh, minor damage to infrastructure. It is interesting that we feel like we have to respond by escalating when typically this attack would have been intercepted. And like she said, it would have caused minor damage they, they, we would have knocked the drone out of the sky. Maybe it hits a fence and, and they have to fix a fence post. But because we screwed up mm -hmm. um, and our defenses presumed that this drone was actually a U.S. drone that had been out, you know, flying around Jordan and who, who knows where else, uh, that we let it get too close to the base. Yes. And when it got too close to the base, it killed three soldiers. So it's, it's very interesting that we feel like, yes, they did launch it, but it if we had intercepted it, like we had intercepted every other other one, we would not feel like we had to attack Iran. Yeah, it's, it 
great point that our own incompetence, and I think this is what's so scary about being fanned out across the Middle East in ways that actually you and Ken Clippenstein and the, and the Intercept in general has been, uh, I think, dogged at tracking down and pushing these questions about our, who's in Yemen? What do you right. mean we're in Yemen? Uh, that's, I think, what's so dangerous yeah, about what, being fanned. we're in Jordan? Uh, Bass yeah. Stoller made a good point the other day, you know, You know where American troops are not dying? Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And people have been saying for years now, Leaving troops in Syria, leaving troops all, all spread out all over the Middle East is just giving targets yeah. to these militias. Say you make a mistake, like in this case, right. three service members die. And now, right. than, and now we're required to go to war over it? Right, right. And so then you have the pressures, you have uh, all of that. And just because of our own incompetence and because we were fanned out across the Middle East in different ways. Uh, now, again, the, the fault is with the people who are sending drones to us for killing the service members. That doesn't excuse the incompetence at all. And it doesn't excuse us having this strategy that makes us so vulnerable to getting into wars uh, because, like you said, Ryan, yeah. like these pressures can change in an instant. And meanwhile, as Crystal Sager talked about yesterday, the negotiations over some type of resolution to the hostage uh, crisis and the war itself conti continue, uh, each side rejecting offers and offers and counter offers. Meanwhile, we can put up this next element here. Uh, Hamas appears to be regrouping in, in northern Gaza uh, and it, a, a sign of Israel retreat, uh, retreating and the war effort going quite poorly on the ground um, mm. for for the IDF. Now, if if you remember, uh, the State Department won a concession from Israel that United Nations surveyors would be able to go into northern Gaza and just check out the situation and, and come back with a report on what it would take to get Palestin the Palestinian population to be able to go back to their homes. Uh, Matt Miller at the State Department yesterday said that that, that is now on hold uh, because of so many um, Hamas militants resurfacing in this area. Uh, Israel is, is saying publicly that Hamas is even policing the area. Mm -hmm. And this, this comes at, after Israel said maybe a dozen different times that they had operational control of northern Gaza, which was in the face of so many analysts saying it's not possible. Like with just simply with the civilian population against you, with the ton with the the tunnels uh, remain, you know, remaining operational, yes. despite the fact that they're now flooding them again, the, the Israel uh, flooding them with water again, uh, something like 80% of them are still functional. Uh, and the Israeli economy is buckling under the weight of all of this, because not only are, are they, have they now cut off their main source of low-wage labor, which is, you know, West Bank Palestinians and Gazan Palestinians that they're not allowing into the country anymore, but hundreds of thousands of their uh, other, uh, you know, Israeli workers have been called up and are fighting the war. So you've got entire companies that are just basically empty of, of workers. And you can't run an economy for, for long uh, under those conditions, especially when tourism, which is a major part of the, uh, the economy, is also spiraling. Your point about Hamas returning to northern Gaza is such an important one. This is quotes from that Guardian article that we just had up on the screen from Michael Milstein of the Institute for National Security Studies, which is basically a think tank that's in Israel. It's based in Tel Aviv. Uh, he said, Hamas control these areas. So there's no chaos or vacuum because it is the workers of Gaza municipality or civil rescue defense forces who are effectively part of Hamas 
who are enforcing public order. Hamas still exists. Hamas has survived. The IDF version is that in the northern part of Gaza, the basic military structure of Hamas was broken. That only works with a conventional army, but not for a flexible guerrilla operation like Hamas. We are already seeing individuals as snipers setting booby traps and so on. So many casualties in northern Gaza over the last few months for that goal of eliminating mm -hmm. Hamas. Uh, a lot of people died in the interest of eliminating Hamas. This is, I mean, beyond tragic uh, to, to realize that, you know, again, we've been questioning whether that was a possibility when you have, as Michael Milstein puts it, a, quote, flexible guerrilla operation. Uh, and I think we're going to be seeing increasingly that the answer to that is what people suspected it, it was not possible right. to wage that kind of war and, quote, eradicate Hamas. Right. I think, and Sagar has made, I think earlier in this war, Sagar was making some comparisons uh, to Vietnam mm -hmm. and the Viet Cong. And I think those are apt in the sense that, and, and you could also say it in comparison to the American Revolution. Like the idea that the British were going to come over here <laughs> or the U.S. were going to go over to Vietnam and we were, and they would just magically pluck out you know, Sam Adams and John Adams and go find, uh, you know, Thomas Paine and kill them and, you know, flatten Philadelphia. Granted, they didn't have drones. You know, they did not. They did not have drones. They had fire and torture and they used it uh, pretty ruthlessly. But because the the guerrilla army of the American revolutionaries was part and parcel of the the kind of the patriotic resistance, you know, to Britain, like you're not going to just get rid of it. Like that's not going to happen in Vietnam. You're not you, you're not going to identify a list of Viet Cong, you know, capture and kill all of them, and then all of a sudden, you just have a pliant Vietnamese population that uh, is happy to you know, live under whatever American puppet you you put over there. Like that, and they would keep putting up. You know, back in during the Vietnam War, they kept putting up the casualty figures. Look, we just killed another you know ten thousand mm -hmm. Vietnamese. And that that would be, and and victory is you know about to turn a corner. There's light at the end of the tunnel. They kept saying, just to kill a few more. But if if the if the if the guerrilla army is an organic part of the population, yeah, then you're not going to be able to do that. And at the same time, critics of the Palestinians who say, well, there are, there are no civilians, like President Herzog has said, there are no civilians. They all support Hamas. If that's true, then how are you going to Uproot exactly. Hamas. Like yeah, you, exactly. you either believe if you believe that, then your strategy has to be to completely clear out every Palestinian, right? Or your strategy will fail. And and I think that for a lot of them, that was their strategy. But now they're running up against the the inter international uh, resistance to just clearing out all the Palestinians. Yeah, and we're talking about tens of thousands of deaths uh, based on estimates that we have right now, and still Hamas now returning to northern Gaza and uh, apparently operating uh, or, or reestablishing some of those operations mm -hmm. that existed just a few months ago. While they're still waging their military campaign. This isn't even after they've kind of backed off. Right. Well, I guess, I mean, to, to some I mean, they extent. They have backed off, but yeah. they, haven't, they haven't ceased fire. Yeah. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's look at Kamala Harris being pressed by Katie Couric on what we have uh, been very clear is is perhaps the biggest problem with the United States' involvement in this conflict in terms of the philosophy, the kind of underlying philosophy that the U.S. is bringing to the conflict. Let's roll this clip. We've been very clear. Humanitarian aid must flow. From day one, I will tell you, one of my areas of priority included, let's think about the day after, because we must stay focused on an eventual two-state solution. Well, having said that, I want to tell you something which I'm sure you're well aware of, that Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, recently said. He rejected U.S. calls to scale back Israel's military action in the Gaza Strip or to support a Palestinian state after the war. He even said that Israel, quote, must have security control over the entire territory west of the Jordan River, which includes Gaza. So given those positions, how can you possibly come together? How can the U.S. and Israel come together to solve this? And should aid to Israel be conditional? So I'll start with the principles that we are applying to this discussion, which we've been very clear with the Israeli government about. One, as it relates to the day after, there should be no reoccupation of Gaza. There should be no changing of the territorial boundaries of Gaza. That the Palestinians are entitled to, in equal measure with Israelis, security and prosperity. Doesn't sound like Bibi Netanyahu agrees with that. 
we're the United States of America. I'm telling you our position. And we take our role in this discussion very seriously. There may be disagreements. That doesn't mean we're going to change our mind. So should aid, Madam Vice President, be conditional? If uh, the Prime Minister of Israel is stating this, should that aid not come if there's not that kind of flexibility that you're seeking? We are right now in a position of negotiating with Congress to follow through on a commitment we made for aid. And we are taking it one day at a time in terms of what is happening in the region and how we are addressing the issue. But that's where we are right now. So I don't feel like you really answered my question. I do think you, I did. Well, do you th <laughs> do you, do you, but do you think it should be conditional? I know you're carrying out. That's what, not our position right now. Though. Not right now. It's like uh, that confession was extracted through torture. Yeah. Practically. Just say it. You know, Kamala yeah. Harris is mad when she's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was impressive, though, the way that Katie Couric there just doesn't move on and, and uh, just insists on getting an actual answer out of her. Yeah. That was, I, th I thought that was impressively done. And, you know, especially after Kamala Harris said, well, I think I've answered your question. Mm-hmm. It's like, did you? No. Because I'm not quite sure. Katie Kirk committing quite, random acts of journalism. Not quite sure that I heard an answer there. <laughs> uh, but so, that, but the substance of it is also so important. There could not be bigger gap between the two positions of Netanyahu's, which is, you know, Israel ought to control, have security control right. over everything from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, and the American position that Israel should not and that there should be a path toward a two-state solution. Right. Like that, that's, now, Netanyahu's is actually much more uh, grounded in the reality of, of the fact that there are 750,000 Israeli settlers in, in the West Bank and, and that Israel is pursuing control, not just of the Erez crossing, but also of the, the Rafah crossing with Egypt. Mm -hmm. like they, they are gunning, they are trying to make that reality the, the kind of final reality on the ground. Yeah. Like their, their, their vision is much closer to happening right. um, than, than our vision. So in that sense, you know, you know, he, his, his posture is in the lead, uh, but for years we've kind of had to pretend that that's not really what he thinks. And that there's actually uh, a major constituency in in Israel for a two-state solution if we just continue to say that there is. Yeah, and if you zoom out to 30,000 feet and try to explain the United States' support for this war to people in another time or another era, they would say, oh, so you are uh, aiding Israel uh, and, and their goals for Gaza, their goals for the territory. I mean, that's the most common sense... Mm -hmm. Uh, conclusion yeah. Yeah, is the most co common sense conclusion from uh, a nation giving another nation um, billions of dollars to prosecute a war. But in fact, we're on vastly different pages about why the war is being or fought. Or we say we are. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think, though, that, I mean, Joe Biden's been a two-state solution guy for decades. He's, you know, Mr. Two-State Solution. Yeah. He walks around like Mr. Two-State Solution. Uh, and it's just a incredibly, I think it's very frightening. We've talked about this a lot. But it's it just the fact that this isn't the conversation the media is pushing every single day. And it took Katie Couric like three months to get Kamala Harris yeah. to confront that uh, central tension is pathetic. Right. And, and the key thing is, okay, what we say doesn't mean much. What we do is what matters. There was some leaked report in NBC News that uh, Biden is now considering 
you know, withholding some weapons uh, in, in order to put pressure on Israel, which flies in the face of all these people you see saying, well, Biden can't do that. No, of course Biden can do that. But to do what and why? I mean, it's just that's the question that Biden and Kamala Harris absolutely can't answer to def for Israel to defend itself. OK, so to what again, to what ends? Does that mean uh, that Israel controls the entire area or, or um, what are your conditions actually aimed at achieving? Right. The, the way that people think about it here in the U.S. is that uh, unconditional support for Israel empowers the right wing because it allows the right wing to say, look, we don't have to compromise at all with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. We can do the maximalist version of what we want and the U.S. will be behind us the entire time. And that undercuts uh, the Yeshatid party, uh, Benny Gantz, people who in the past have, not today, but in the past, have you know spoken favorably about a two-state solution. They don't even talk about it uh, anymore. But if the United States came around and said, look, this is the deal. Like, we're cutting off aid tomorrow yeah. unless you move forward on an irrevocable path on a two-state solution and you cut a deal with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, everybody else, and, and you just have to do this. That then empowers the, the political position inside Israel that says, look, we don't have a choice. We have to do this. That moves voters. It moves and it moves politicians. That's that's the theory. Uh, what the theory so far has been held up by reality because our unconditional support for Israel has only moved the is Israeli kind of political spectrum, you know, inexorably to the right over the last thirty years. It, it makes it's more logically consistent to be a one-stater at this point, like Netanyahu, right. than to be whatever the hell Kamala Harris and Or like Harris a Rashida Tlaib, who's are. like, look, it's not gonna happen. Let's just give everyone equal rights and citizenship within the, the exact same area that Netanyahu just outlined. It's a clear and consistent uh, and like sort of coherent, internally coherent end goal. And that is not what we're getting from this administration whatsoever. We don't have any clear benchmark of what it means to eradicate Hamas and no clear benchmark of what would happen after eradicating Hamas. And yet we're pouring so much money into this conflict that is spilling so much blood. Uh, again, just a scary place to be. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're getting an absolute pressure cooker situation uh, in, in the West Bank. Let's roll a video here of this a raid of a hospital uh, by Israeli assassins in Janine. So what, what you're seeing here uh, are it's a, a group of Israeli commandos uh, dressed up in medical garb, uh, some of them dressed as, as women wearing hijab, uh, with silencers on their uh, assault weapons, strolling through a hospital. Now, now, now they're showing footage of the room uh, where they assassinated three Palestinians. There's a, uh, a blood-stained pillow where it seems that somebody uh, was executed uh, in their bed. I we were told it, they were sleeping when they were. And, and Israel has since said that one of them had a gun on them, uh, but the, the hospital has said there was no exchange of fire. So the, 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 gun, the only guns that were fired came from uh, the Israeli commandos there. One of the Western uh, outlets, I think it was the BBC, uh, put, put uh, assassination in quotes and said that the Palestinians, you know, described this as, an, as a quote, assassination. In their next paragraph, they mentioned that uh, the commandos used silencers. I think we can take the quotes off of assassination. If you if you sneak up on somebody yeah. uh, and and assassinate them, in, when they're mil yes, all three of the people who were killed have been claimed by terrorists. So and, and, Hamas and claimed one. one. One of them was apparently a spokesman uh, for the for a Hamas uh, military wing, um, and the other two were uh, like a, com a commander and yeah, right, right. right. These are all like these are uh, like there doesn't seem to be any question that these are Hamas figures. Doesn't also doesn't seem to be any question that they were in a hospital, which is an assassination. That, that's right. a, yeah, it's like it's, an a, it's an assassination. Is, Israel has security control of the West Bank, like they occupy the West Bank. There was nothing stopping them from going in as a police force or even as a military force in actual military gear, and you, you're even seeing from. Um, Israeli politicians and others saying that that would have been just from a tactical propaganda perspective a, a savvier way to do it. Hmm. You surround and you surround them if if there is if if they fight back, a gunfight you know uh, happens and boom. Uh, unfortunately, we had to kill these three militants. But to go in dressed as kind of nurses and doctors. You can see them in this picture with Ben Gavir, yeah. by the way. We yeah, have this, put, the next put this element. next picture this up. This is uh, Edmar Ben Gavir posing 
uh, with some of the people that were part of this operation that uh, you just saw on the video. Yes, there it is. And they, they have changed back into some type of commando garb there, mm -hmm. uh, no longer dressed in their kind of medical gear. Uh, but yeah, it, when, the, when Israel has been spending so much time you know, accusing Hamas of embedding itself with civilians, uh, for them to kind of disguise themselves as civilians and go into a hospital that's under their control in the West Bank with, as I said, the West Bank currently at a pressure cooker situation because workers are not allowed to go from the West Bank into Israel. This not only is that hurting the Israeli economy, uh, Israel under Ben Gavir's, uh, or actually under Smotrich's direction, has seized all of the funds that belong to the Palestinian Authority to pay uh, unemployment benefits so people are, uh, you know, suffering, you know, fi financially badly in the West Bank. Uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, Palestinians getting killed in the West Bank be beyond this, this type of situation. So you can only imagine, you know, where, where this is, is, is headed. There doesn't seem to be any effort to try to find any peaceful resolution, any way out of this. It just seems to be an endless ratcheting up of tensions. From the propaganda point of view, I think, you know, Israel can make the case that here you have a very clear-cut example of militants being embedded with the civilian population, their uh, soldiers going in and having this precision strike on three guys with no uh, civilian casualties that we know of yet, and uh, then you know, and, and no casualties to their own troops. I mean, I, I can I think there's a, a case that actually that is sort of flipping what we were just talking about and, and saying if they hadn't dressed up as nurses and doctors, I it, think they'd be in a little stronger position. I mean, but from their point of view, they can say it was a successful mission with yes. casualties only they to the military. Certainly three people. Yeah, but who were terrorists yeah. embedded in the hospital? The State Department was pressed on this uh, yesterday. Let's roll some of that. Something that you think is a, is problematic, or is it something that you look at with uh, envy, like this is some kind of great mission, impossible mission that we wish that we could also do? So I'd say that we strongly urge caution whenever operations have the potential to impact civilians and civilian installations. That, of course, includes hospitals. Uh, we do recognize the very real security challenges Israel faces uh, and its legitimate right to defend its people and its territory from terrorism. Israel, of course, has the right to carry out operations to bring terrorists to justice, but those operations need to be conducted in full compliance with international humanitarian law. Well, do those operations include going into hospitals and murdering people in their in, in their beds, regardless of whether they're, so, you know, they are suspected or so, even known terrorists. So Is that okay with you guys? So there was a lot in the premise of that question. Obviously they we did did do know that they went into Well, we, you don't think well, that they we, went we, in and uh, killed we, complete people who were completely innocent. So right? let me say that if this, you did think that then you would be condemning it, uh, right? We certainly would, but I would say that Israel has said that these were Hamas operatives. Uh, they have said that one of them was carrying a gun at the time of the operation. So I'm not able to speak to the facts of the operation. You'd have to, to, to pass some kind of legal judgment, know all of the facts of the operation. But as a general matter, they do have the right to carry out operations to bring terrorists to justice, but they need to be conducted. Including in hospitals. So we want them to conduct their operations in compliance with international humanitarian law. We would generally say that we don't want them to carry out operations in hospitals, but under international humanitarian law, hospitals do lose some of their protections if they are being used to 
for the planning of terrorist operations, for the execution of the terrorist Expo operations. Hospitals, the actual hospital building does, but I mean, going in disguised as you know women and, and doctors so, and, and, and whatever is is something different, and then going in and and picking out people in particular rooms and particular beds and killing them seems to be something different. Yeah, it's a great line of questioning that pushes the State Department for consistency on this question of the rules-based order, essentially. And, you know, the, the hospital thing, it, Brian, can you explain or, or go into a little bit more about the, the rules-based order that the United States and Israel uh, are sort of talking about all of the time uh, as it applies to Hamas and as it applies to uh, operations in Palestine and elsewhere? Um, where, where is this, or what is that context um, on the other end? Yeah, the, 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 Hamas is a guerrilla uh, army. Yeah. Uh, and so Israel is routinely accusing it of embedding itself in, uh, among a civilian population. Which was in, the case here. In, including, it's, a good, it's an interesting question. If, if a terrorist is going for treatment at a hospital, does that count as kind of hiding among the civilian population, or does that count as like they needed treatment? Yeah, I suppose we don't know exactly what the case is. We don't know exactly what they were doing in the we hospital. Can, we can yet. tell that one of them was lying on the bed because in a hospital the, bed. the blood the blood stain and the bullet hole goes right through the pillow. Right. So somebody was hurt enough that they're in bed and right. getting treatment. And, and it has been said that they were getting treatment and that's how they knew that they were in there. Um, so Elon uh, Levy, who's the uh, spokes, uh, you know, Israeli spokesperson, uh, was in a Twitter fight with Yanis uh, Varoufakis, who is the former kind of Greek uh, foreign, uh, former Greek finance minister, you know, who was accusing him of uh, breaking the breaking the rule of law. Uh, Varoufakis said, "Here's the latest incident: Israeli undercover soldiers, agents entered Janine Hospital this morning and shot dead three injured Palestinians." in their hospital beds while being treated, rule of law, Western style, want to talk about terrorism. Uh, Elon Levy responded, Israel eliminated three terrorists trying to hide in a hospital and then dug up their ancestors in a weird way. He says, I, I bet when this man's ancestors accused Jews of the original medieval blood libels, they also felt similarly smug and morally superior, but at least their excuse was that they were illiterate. Speaking of propaganda battles. I don't see how, who he's winning over there. Yeah, no, I don't I don't either. Um, and, you know, this is, again, it, it reminds me of what we were just talking about with Kamala Harris and Biden versus like Netanyahu, where if you have a problem as the United States, like if, if you have a problem with the rule of law, the, the rule-based international order, say that. Don't pretend to be upholding the rules-based order when you can't answer questions, uh, which was the case with Matt Miller there. I mean, I just it would make so much more sense to say, well, we think that this particular uh, rule against war crimes is wrong, that right. this doesn't make sense. It's impossible when you're fighting a guerrilla operation, as you were saying, Ryan. That's way more morally consistent than uh, treating yourselves or, or you know, conducting yourselves in a way, in one way, and then having your propaganda battle be all about rules-based international order when you get into a, a sort of uh, conversation like that and don't have clear answers. The, the, again, the, you know, honesty and war, these are questions that, you know, have, have uh, puzzled people for time immemorial. Uh, but in this case, it's just 
very grating to hear the constant, uh, you know, uh, propaganda about the rules-based inter yeah. international order. And to follow up on a story that we covered uh, last week, Israel was under fire for desecration of cemeteries across across Gaza. Their initial rationale, they said, for uh, desecrating these cemeteries was that they were trying to kind of dig up graves and find uh, the remains of, of hostages. Mm -hmm. The new explanation that they have is that there were actually tunnels uh, that underneath these cemeteries that they were working to destroy. There was a, CNN was the one that, the Western media, the American media that exposed uh, this last week because there was a CNN embed as they were, you know, with them as they were destroying all these cemeteries. Now they're following up uh, again. And there's a, this is a fascinating story from CNN. Uh, and watch to the end of it here. Let's roll that. We're asking the general if we can actually see the shaft to the tunnel. But the answer is no. So? There's all kinds of machinery which I don't want you to, uh, just to take pictures of. The security might force. But what about if we don't film it? We just no look with our eyes. If we... you, you might fall in, the whole thing can collapse. So you have to walk to the edge. The edge is not secured. It can collapse. There's machinery, so on. It's, it's not something I'm going to take a risk on. Sorry. The Israeli military later provided this drone footage, showing the tunnel shaft we entered and another one nearby. CNN geolocated the footage using this satellite image. This outline shows where the cemetery once stood, and these are the two tunnel entrances clearly outside the graveyard. As for the tunnel they say they found here, where the cemetery once stood, the military never provided any evidence. And so, if, yeah, if you're watching it, it's if you're listening to it rather than watching it, yeah, the images were outside of the cemetery. Uh, and, you know, good for CNN. For Usually CNN there would say CNN could not independently verify the Israeli officials' claim. Here they said they provided no evidence mm -hmm. while also showing that the evidence they did provide was a lie, that mm -hmm. it was outside uh, the, the cemetery. Uh, I, I would say that this is suggestive of the Western media taking a little bit of a turn. But in fact, the Western media has spent the last several days just talking about, you know, the, the 12 alleged uh, Hamas terrorists, or 10 of them Hamas, one Islamic Jihad, one apparently a civilian that ran over, uh, who worked for UNRWA, and which, which has led to the pausing of funding by the U.S. and like a dozen other countries to the and refugee the leaked, agency. the leaked messages from UNRWA. Right, which, which we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. Right. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Intercept has some excellent reporting on internal turmoil at the New York Times over an episode of their extremely popular podcast, mm-hmm. The Daily, which is a source of news for people around the country, a primary source of news, actually, for people around the country. It also airs on NPR. Now, Ryan, tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys found when you looked into uh, these internal conversations at The New York Times. Yeah, and I think the context here is that The New York Times has been so successful at navigating the transition to digital media, Hmm. and so much of the rest of the mainstream media has been so bad at uh, navigating that transition, that the Times now has almost a dangerous concentration of of power among kind of liberal audiences. A a major story in the New York Times uh, and an an episode of The Daily can by itself establish a narrative. Doesn't it doesn't even need what the New York Times also has, which is a megaphone capacity, where you know they they do reporting and then it's picked up on by CNN and MSNBC, ABC News, the the rest of it, and so it disseminates that way. Just on its own, it now has the capacity to kind of shape millions of people's understanding of um, of how they sh- they ought to think about the world and what they understand uh, has happened, and oftentimes based on the reporting that we've done about the New York Times newsroom, this massive world-changing decisions are made in seconds mm. by kind of mid, mid-level editors just plucking something off of the New York Times internal slack, turning <laughs> it into a headline that then becomes a controversy for like three days. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, the reporter put this in slack. I grabbed it and made it a headline. Why is the world kind of freaking out? Um, and so... Uh, the, the piece that we have up on the Intercept that I did with my colleague, um, Daniel Bogoslaw, which you can put up here, is about how uh, the, the Times at the end of December did a major piece uh, called Screams Without Words about, the, about Hamas uh, using sexual violence as a, as a weapon of war on o- October 7th, systematically using it. Inside the New York Times, a ton of reporters and editors kind of pushed back and, and said, you have to be very careful with this story because it do, it does not seem to stand up its main claim. Was there sexual violence on October seventh? Absolutely. Uh, can you uh, can you claim that it was 
systematic and perpetuated by Hamas de deliberately based on what is in this reporting. And a lot of reporters and others are pushing back saying, no, you, you can't. You can't make those and that's, claims. That's really interesting that you have the reporters and the editors at the New York Times pushing back on what right. the and, New and, York Times and, and the reporters are themselves saying that they're confident that there was sexual violence. Oh, yes. But yes. they're saying this story itself does not does not stand up for a variety of different reasons that are that are out there publicly. And the Times was promoting this story. I mean, this was a, a big spread. This was right. a huge story for them. And it makes sense then they wanted to jump in into the daily, that they wanted to take it and, and feature it as a, a center uh, for an episode of the daily. And that's where uh, the staff pushback became right. untenable, according to your reporting here, right? Right. It was scheduled to air uh, in, in early January, hmm. about a week and a half after... Um, uh, after the original story came out, but under pressure, uh, producers and fact checkers with the Daily started looking you know, closer at the story, and they put it on ice. And it, we're now into you know tomorrow will be February, and, and it and it hasn't run yet. And we may still we may still see an episode of it. But what we learned uh, was that the original script, which hewed very closely to the original uh, New York Times story, which had a lot of certainty. Um, and, and was uh, sourced to a, a lot of people, you know, who have changed their stories and have said, like, just completely wild things that have been, you know, publicly dis discredited. Like, uh, one person, I think, said that there was, uh, they, that they found a, a pregnant woman who'd had a, like, a fetus cut out of her. Mm -hmm. and, and the Israeli government itself, like, debunked a lot of these claims. So the, the same people who the Israeli government have backed away from were like the names, were a lot of named sources for the New York Times here, so. And what was the problem for this story in particular is when one of the family members that was, who that was, spoke to the New York Times. That was Times, a problem, a family member came out. Publicly yeah. said that this reporter, which you guys get into Joe Kahn right. and his background as sort of an advocate um, for the state of Israel politically, uh, his father as well, uh, which is very interesting context. I think it doesn't mean that his reporting can't be completely right. accurate and honest, but it does add some context here to what happened. Um, but when you have a family member saying, that's not what I thought I was telling the reporter, it was pretty devastating for the story itself. Yes, and and, and, some, and other issues that have been raised elsewhere. And, and so the Daily wrote a new script, which was much more kind of open-ended and asking questions. And it was what from, from people that I've uh, spoken with who are familiar with it, a much more responsible piece of journalism and, and, and approach, the, approach the issue in a much more sensitive way. But that hasn't aired yet. Mm -hmm. And because the Times is in a bit of a jam, because if they run the original mm -hmm. one, the original script, then they're kind of republishing uh, a lot of errors that have you know, since been exposed. If they run a more circumspect, kind of dialed down responsible version, it raises all of these questions. It's a concession. About... Well, why haven't you corrected the original one? Yeah. Uh, are you backing off of the original one? So uh, for the reporters involved here, the only way out is through. And so they were assigned a, a new story. And that came out uh, earlier earlier this week. It, one of the most bizarre pieces I've seen in the New York Times, because it, the headline was about uh, the United Nations sending uh, investigators over to uh, Israel to uh, examine you know, atrocity allegations. Mm -hmm. But after just a couple paragraphs, it, it turns into kind of a, a re-reporting and an interrogation of the original story, yet it was written by the same reporters. It, I, I've never seen kind of the, uh, a group of reporters assigned to go kind of question their own reporting. Yeah. And <laughs> unsurprisingly, they, they checked their own work and found it to be solid. Mm -hmm. Although uh, one of their sources 
so won't won't talk to them anymore. It's a it's a fascinating piece. People people can people can check it out. But it shows it 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 just is a glimpse into uh, the the kind of war over the messaging uh, related to this um, related to this conflict because you know so much of the justification uh, for the ongoing uh, onslaught is is rooted on the barbarity um, of October seventh and. It's, it, it feels like the actual barbarity that was on display for everyone to see didn't seem to be enough for some propagandists that they had to like ratchet it up and you start seeing things like you know, 40 beheaded babies um, and, and on and on, the things that are just were, were not true. But by the time we realize that they're not true, tens of thousands of, of Palestinians have been, have been killed based on you know, justifying their, their killing based on things that we then, then learned uh, didn't happen. So this next element uh, involves the Wall Street Journal. We'll put this up on the screen. It's a uh, so this is the Wall Street Journal. Intelligence reveals details of UN agency staffs links to October seventh. The subhead is around ten percent of Palestinian aid agencies. Twelve thousand staff in Gaza have links to militants, according to an intelligence dossier. Uh, this next part of the element you can see is on the right side of the screen. That's the author of the story, uh, who is. Again, this is <laughs> the author of the story served in the IDF. Uh, so you can understand the intelligence dossier finding its way to a former IDF member who's writing for the Wall Street Journal, Ryan. Uh, again, helpful context. I think it's interesting if you try to imagine that you're a Palestinian reading the Western press. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is And this? it's just, you see all of these uh, people who served in the IDF or whose children are currently serving. Um, in, in, the, in the IDF doing the reporting. It's not like, you can only imagine the re, if there were a reverse uh, situation. Like you, you simply can't, actually you simply cannot imagine if there was a reverse situation. Well, there were situation. allegations of some, especially like freelancers who got uh, you know, early reporting footage. Yes, and, that, that's, the, that's a very good point. And Israel said they were going to kill those people. Yes. We, yes. Right, right. Because they were journalists who were photographing uh, October 7th, there attacks. were a couple of allegations yeah. that did seem like the journalists in the interest of access it would be the most charitable version of that argument <clears throat> did have links to Hamas. And again, this is the entire conversation we have about the intertwinement of the civilian population right. and the military population in a, a tiny swath of land like Gaza that creates uh, very real challenges um, for Israel morally uh, and, and creates like a, a really difficult situation. And that's no excuse. I don't say that as an excuse whatsoever. I'm just saying the situation on the ground is not like in other wars. It's not the same thing. It's a it's a different thing, and that's something that you know. With the, this media coverage, it's tough because it's again. I think people with biases can do perfectly good reporting. Sure. What we see, like, me. Yeah, like, like you, like like us. <laughs> uh, but what we see happening is. Uh, people being really cagey about their biases. And I think that's a huge problem uh, when you're, and I, I'm sure we agree on that point, that when you're not upfront yeah. and open about the fact that you served in the IDF, you are uh, totally pro-Zionist, you are all of these different things, fine. Um, but being open about that, I think would help people say, oh, this uh, intelligence dossier you're reporting on and I think UNRWA does have really weird, real problems. We can put this Jeremy Scahill tweet up on the screen as well. Um, in the same way I was just 
talking about, this is Jeremy Scahill saying, incredible, uh, quote, we haven't had the ability to investigate the allegations ourselves. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said of Israel's charges against UNRWA employees. Uh, Blinken then, then adds, but they're highly, highly credible. Uh, that, I imagine, is about the dossier specifically. But in general, there was also reports from an open uh, Israeli advocacy group, uh, UN Watch, uh, that leaked a bunch of messages from UNRWA workers uh, mm -hmm. after October 7th, seeming to celebrate uh, what had happened. And again, this is what we're talking about, the challenges of having you know, Western media with a lot of people who maybe fought in the IDF, uh, whose parents fought in the IDF, and then having the task of reporting on all of this. Um, it, it's just a completely right. different situation. Yes, and the 10% the, the figure uh, I think should be taken with a grain of salt there where they say that 10% have connections to militants. That's in the subhead. In the actual article, it says connections to either the political or social wing. Or, mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. Hamas is, is you know, the de facto government of, of Gaza. Yeah. And so I think 15% of the population is like an actual member. So how, I mean, 10% sounds like a vast undercount. If, if anything, you would, you would right. you'd think it might be. And then they say... Um, that they have a close, like half have a close relative or something that's mm -hmm. involved with, with Hamas. So what does that tell most, you? Most people have hundreds of relatives because right. um, the, the birth rates there are through the roof yeah. and people can't leave. So within just a, two generations, yes. you've got 300 cousins yes. uh, living in the same neighborhood. Yes. If one of them uh, is involved with Hamas, which is the government of the area, then boom, of the 13,000 or so employees inside uh, Gaza of UNRWA, then you, you hit a number like that, yeah. Which makes it really hard, again, to prosecute a war while talking about the rules-based international order and then having this massive level of civilian and military entwinement, as these stories demonstrate, yeah. uh, without committing uh, some really egregious violations. Yeah, and it also shows why uh, Israel sh made a mistake by propping up Hamas. Mm -hmm. Like absolutely, like that Israel allows you know insisted actually that that Qatar continue to prop up Hamas, so that uh, they would not have a partner for peace. They wanted to divide. The, Netanyahu was very clear about this. They wanted to divide the Palestinians between the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank, Hamas running Gaza. Forty chess. Because then Netanyahu would not be under any pressure to negotiate uh, with uh, you know, with Palestinians towards statehood, because Hamas doesn't want to negotiate towards statehood. So they, they both had an incentive to keep each other in power. And one thing I, that frustrates me about some on the, on the left and in the uh, supporters of the resistance who say, who, who are supportive of not necessarily Hamas, but are like, you'll find them defensive about Hamas. Like, why are you defending an organization that Netanyahu wants in power? <laughs> Like, come on, Netanyahu's like, why are you, why are you, yeah, being a, being a sucker for Netanyahu here? Yeah, it's also like, take Netanyahu at his word. Like, they are an obstacle to a, to, to a, to uh, dignity and and to like a resolution of this conflict. Well, and take Palestinians at their word because a whole lot of Palestinians hold that exact same perspective and say, yeah, Netanyahu's right. Hamas is an obstacle uh, to. <laughs> And it, but if you back Palestinians into a corner and don't give them any other options, then they're like, well, this this is what we've got. We tried uh, you know, 30 years of the peace process, and every single year, conditions uh, materially and civilly got worse. 
the, the underlying tension we talked about earlier in the show, where you have the United States and Israel on vastly different pages about a one-state solution or a two-state solution, uh, while spending, you know, from the U.S. perspective, billions every year in this region, and uh, you know now so much more on the line, it is just a, a quagmire. There's no other way to put it, and it's there's there's basically no light at the end of that tunnel. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's move on to the squad, Ryan, because this is in some ways uh, a a more interesting, uh, not more interesting, a more uh, a lighter story because we have poetry from Jamal Bowman involved. uh, We have mistranslations involved and we have, uh, I guess, security turned husbands involved in all likelihood. Uh, Ryan, what is the name of your book, by the way? The the book is called The Squad and (laughs) it's going to need, the paperback version is going to need another chapter for uh, for everything we're seeing. Just this week. (laughs) Yeah. The the context, of course, is that you know, APAC uh, is is putting together an unprecedented level of spending to try to uh, wipe out uh, the squad in Congress. Meanwhile, uh, they're facing an 
a, a cascading number of their own scandals. That let, we, we'll talk about uh, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, and Ilhan Omar um, in this segment. Let's start with uh, Cori Bush. Uh, it was reported yesterday that she's under uh, DOJ investigation uh, for uh, over her ca- uh, campaign spending on security. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, after the news was broken by Punchbowl, um, she, came, she came out and acknowledged that the investigation is happening uh, and said that uh, she will be found to have uh, done nothing wrong. Let's roll a little bit of uh, Cori Bush here. I hold myself, my campaign, and my position to the highest levels of integrity. I also believe in transparency, which is why I can confirm that the Department of Justice is reviewing my campaign spending on security services. We are fully cooperating with this investigation, and I would like to take this opportunity to outline the facts and the truth. Since before I was sworn into office, I have endured relentless threats to my physical safety and life. As a rank-and-file member of Congress, I am not entitled to personal protection by the House and instead have used campaign funds as permissible to retain security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. Any reporting that I have used funds for personal, secu- for personal security is simply false. In recent months, right-wing organizations have lodged baseless complaints against me, peddling notions that I have misused campaign funds to pay for personal security services. That simply is not true. So, Emily, what's the best uh, case that uh, you've seen in in the right-wing press kind of against her at this point? Well, it does look like uh, there was, so this can go in a couple of different ways. So from her perspective, she can say, I need to spend a lot of money on security. Um, She had a security guard who turned into her husband, uh, who she says was making fair market rate. Um, And, you know, it looks like- Security is expensive, so it's probably going to be eye-popping number, but go ahead. Yeah, so she, she spends more than other people do on security. And Okay, but she can make the point that she's a member of the squad. The squad is very high profile, and that necessarily means she's probably going to be spending more money on security than other, you're your sort of run-of-the-mill member of Congress for being a member of the squad who has, you know, sort of a an ideological, an ideologically high profile uh, departure from the political establishment in Washington, D.C. So you can see how that argument in and of itself, you know, isn't, can go both ways. You know, she's, she's spending a lot of money on security. Maybe it's because she uh, was, you know, involved with her husband and paying him more than fair market rate. We'll see. I mean, that's what they're investigating. Um, I think it's a perfectly legitimate investigation. I'm glad that she's cooperating with it. We will see how she it turns out. She was previously ex- investigated by the Office of Congressional Ethics. It's currently. They're both investigating I thought it. That, I thought that that one concluded, well, she, she said that they, they concluded that she had uh, follow the rules. She says that the House Committee on Ethics are currently reviewing the matter. As yesterday, she said that. Um, okay. So pre- previously, she'd been uh, reviewed, and they had found that she was okay. Maybe now with the new news, they're they're taking a closer look into it because the DOJ would have access to more information than OCE would. And you know that the, the House Ethics Committee is so you never really know when their timelines, they're very secretive. Um, they're totally closed off. So maybe there was something else that they were investigating that Cori Bush was aware of. Um, that is what she's yeah. referring to there. So again, I mean, I, we'll see. I, I don't think we have conclusive evidence in any direction. I'm glad they're investigating it, but this is I, just so minor. 
mean, it's just, it is, it, the allegations right. are We're talking so about war and peace. Uh, yes. And then we're going to have a, a race determined. Like for members of Congress, I'm saying this as a conservative, like this is not disqualifying whatsoever for members of Congress. Now, the right has made a lot of uh, her being a sort of defund the police person and a lot of the squad uh, being defund the police people and then paying uh, hired. That's a clean hit. I think that's, a, that's what I was just going to say. That's a much cleaner hit. Um, so we'll see where this goes. But again, she does have a primary challenge, right, that's being funded by yeah. APAC. Uh, well, there's there's a lot. He, uh, yes, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Wesley Bell uh, was running for Senate, uh, jump, jumped out of the Senate race and into the House race after October 7th when... Um, it appeared that you know Bush could be vulnerable to a to a well-financed challenger. He announced he had raised six hundred thousand um, dollars. There's uh, APAC has already been spending. APAC was spending against her before she had an opponent mm-hmm. through its super PAC. Mm-hmm. So that yes, they're absolutely coming for her. So this will wind up, I think, in all of the super PAC ads mm-hmm. that because um, Marie Newman, uh, who APAC. Uh, took out in 2022 um, because she represented a huge kind of Palestinian population in, in Illinois, um, had a congressional ethics review uh, underway, and they made that like the focus of their you know, massive spending against her. So if you have 30 seconds and, you know, uh, if to do an ad and you got a million dollars to spread it, you can make someone look really, really bad. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see whether or not people kind of believe it. And also, you know, maybe that maybe they actually we'll see. You know, yeah, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. Maybe maybe they should, did make make some mistakes in, in how they in how they did this. Mistakes um, or intentional, uh, yeah. you know, funneling of money. But again, um, <laughs> this is so. It, members of Congress commit so many egregious ethical violations. Uh, I say this not. I, I completely think that they should be looking into it. Uh, if there's good journalism in the space, I welcome it. And I welcome the ethics investigation. I'm glad she's fully cooperating. It, again, like this is just not on the same level as other congressional. As, and it, there, there's a, there's an interesting class issue here in the sense that you know Bush was in poverty up until she got her first paycheck, basically as a as a member of of Congress. She's been homeless. And wealthy members of Congress. Uh, yeah, right. She was home, home, in and out of homelessness. Um, wealthy members of Congress, you know, find ways. Uh, to get fantastically rich through their quote unquote public service mm-hmm. and their consultants find ways to buy boats with um, all sort with with uh, yeah, ca- with, so camp- with campaign yeah. money yeah, that's and so they just happen to know the precise legal ways yeah. that they're able to get insanely rich I'm sure much richer and many more boats uh, than these than the people who uh, there are alleged to have taken you know a little extra security money for uh, allegedly not doing enough security work. Um, and as Sam yeah. Godoldig outlined here uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and his firm outlined here just a couple of weeks ago, the Squad and the Freedom Caucus represent some of the right. uh, lowest income districts in the country, whereas the more centrists represent the higher income districts in the country. And so, yes, you see the class issues, I think, play out um, in different questions like these, which is a, a good prism to look at them through. Yeah. We should move on to Ilhan Omar. Number two in the barrel. Yes, we're continuing our tour through uh, the scandals of the squad and this uh, last week of January 2024 with this video of Ilhan Omar. Uh, this is a, a VO, so we can start running it because she's uh, sh- she's speaking a different language. She says, my answer to Somalians was, and she's speaking to Somalians, that the U.S. government will only do, uh, they, will, they will not do what we want and nothing else. They must follow 
We Somalians must have that confidence in ourselves that we call for. We live in the U.S., pay taxes in the U.S., and have a real voice. The U.S. is a country where one of your daughters is in Congress to represent your interests. For as long as I'm there, basically Somalia will never be in danger. Its waters will not be stolen by Ethiopia or others. The U.S. would not dare to support anyone against Somalia to steal our land, sleep in comfort, knowing I am here to protect the interests of Somalia from inside the U.S. system. So that's translation that was on the bottom of the video. She's speaking to uh, her constituents in Minnesota that are of Somalian heritage. Um, right, and, and, right, and so there's a fight over exactly what she said because she was The words speaking, I just read, actually. Right, there's Whether or not those are accurate translation of what she just said is at the heart of this. And so she was speaking in, in Somali, and so... Um, so uh, a couple of Somali analysts have posted their own translations of, mm -hmm. of what they uh, say that she said, and Omar reposted one of those. So I th think that's a fair one to go by. Uh, and it, in this, this Spectator article, they quote, um, and it's also on, on Twitter, um, you know, she said, quote, uh, while I am in Congress, no one will take Somalia's sea. Somalia belongs to all Somalis. Somalia is one. We are brothers and sisters and our land will not be balkanized. Our lands uh, were taken from us before, and God willing, we may one day seek them. Mm -hmm. So what, what that is a reference to um, is uh, on, on January 1st, the uh, Ethiopia basically cut a deal with the breakaway republic, uh, unrecognized breakaway republic of Somaliland, um, where Ethiopia would recognize Somaliland um, which broke away from Somalia. Mm -hmm. uh, and in exchange, Ethiopia would get access to roughly 20 kilometers of, of sea because Ethiopia has been landlocked you know, forever and, or for decades. And it is a, it is a source of uh, kind of domestic, you know, a national shame mm -hmm. um, that they don't have. And, and they also have claimed quite reasonably that it holds back economic growth to not have, not be able to build a port city. So they cut a deal. Uh, this is an MOU uh, between Ethiopia and Somaliland. Uh, Somalia uh, does not recognize Somaliland does, and believes that it will you know, re retake Somalia, um, Somaliland at some point, and so is deeply hostile. Even, you know, you know we could see a, a hot war at some point. Yeah. Um, deeply hostile to this MOU, this agreement between Somaliland and, and Ethiopia. And so here, Omar is taking sides in that question saying, no, we're, you know, the U.S. is not going to recognize this MOU. Uh, they're not going to recognize Somaliland. And, and we, as a Somali-American population, are going to exert our lobbying influence here in the U.S. to make sure uh, that, they, that they don't do that. And we could, now, she's, she's getting criticized. We can put up this next element. She's getting criticized for engaging in kind of what, uh, what people call kind of greater Somalia ideology, mm -hmm. which, and if you look at this, this kind of map that we have up, and if you're only listening on the podcast, the, the blue is kind of creeping into Kenya mm -hmm. and uh, creeping into uh, Ethiopia, creeping, you know, uh, and, and obviously taking back uh, Somaliland up, up close to Djibouti there. That, that's the kind of the, this like grand vision that some people think she was making a reference to um, when they say, when she, when she said, that our lands were taken for, from us yep. and, and one day we will, we will get them back. And so, you know, you've got Kenyans, Ethiopians and Somaliland, people are like, mm, I don't, how about not? How about we don't do that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Um, so that's, that's the context of, uh, of, all, of, this, of this current controversy. 
So a lot of people on the right reacted to a translation which now does appear to look like it's a mistranslation. I'm obviously not a language it, expert it was, here. It was less irredentist and less kind of uh, aggressive than the original right. translation, but it does still embrace the idea that nobody's going to take Somalia's sea. So, so it's a, it, it is strict opposition to recognition of this MOU. And one of the things the right actually latched onto even more than that in the original translation was Omar referring to herself first as Somali, then as Muslim, and then as uh, American. I think. And that's what, that was a mistranslation. It appears that was a mistranslation. Yeah. Again, I'm not an expert in the language here, but Ilan Omar herself shared the translation that you just discussed. Uh, so she seems to say that's uh, what she was referring to. But that's what really had people on the right saying deport her, she should be expelled from Congress, she sees herself. Uh, I will say that's a real hypocrisy problem when she's talking about in this, uh, even in the, the good translation or the better translation for her, uh, talking about our country, our country, our country, when she's referring to Somalia and then talking about, quote, this country, when she's talking about the United States. I, just, it, it yeah. does seem as though, and I think this is perfectly natural uh, for someone who uh, fled their war-torn homeland and uh, loves their uh, their native country. I, I understand it. Um, I think it's a problem for somebody who criticizes uh, the dual loyalty Israel point. And yeah. that, I think, it's, speaking of clean hits, I think that's kind of a clean hit. And, and I'm all for Somali-Americans lobbying their government for means. whatever interest they, they, they want to lobby for. One, one, one extra thing, piece of context that has people uh, concerned about this is that the greater Somalia ideology is, is associated most with uh, former uh, Somali president, uh, Saeed uh, Barre, yeah. who uh, Omar's father was served under as a colonel. Yeah. Um, and the, and uh, Barre launched a horrific genocide of hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Awful, awful uh, person. Uh, and, and so uh, any association with that, any, any kind of um, hearkening back to that era, which, it, which she's not necessarily doing, but because it's in, in, in the context of this mm -hmm. greater smile, it has people been, wait a minute. It's a little militant in that yeah. big context, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now we move on to Jamal Bowman. Jamal Bowman, a more fun one. Yeah, this one is the the more fun one. Let's put Jamal Bowen, Bowman's poetry. Was it Jewish Insider screen. that broke this? I think, uh, I think it was. It may have been, yeah. yeah. So here's Jamal Bowman's poetry. If you're listening, we'll read it for you. 2001, and he's using the, he's made the stylist this decision is, uh, to use death. like 10, 15 years ago or something, right? It's 2011. 2011. 2011. So long okay. time. So he's using uh, slashes. Uh, 2001, planes used as missiles, target the Twin Towers. Later in the day, Building 7 also collapsed. Hmm. Multiple explosions. Heard before and during the collapse. Hmm. And we can go ahead and put He used to have a blog or something? So you think he keeps going, allegedly, two other planes, the Pentagon, Pennsylvania, hijacked by terrorists, minimal damage done, minimal debris found. Hmm. <laughs> it's pretty, I mean, typical 9-11 yeah. trutherism, but the poetry, uh, the vehicle uh, of poetry and I'd say uh, very contemporary stylistic poetry is uh, particularly interesting in the case of a sitting congressman, Jamal Bowman, but you made a really good point before we started that he's a, a normal guy in ways other members of Congress aren't, which has actually always been my hot take on Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. which is that as like wrong as she is on so many different things, the Beltway's uh, just visceral hatred of her. 
Um, and, and their visceral hatred of 9-11 trutherism, for example, uh, which I think has been debunked. I'm sure I'll get comments on that. Uh, but for, for the record, uh, you know, that is so it, it is so much more in touch with uh, Americans around the country who have no trust and no faith left in any institutions or any government that a lot of people really do believe yeah. this because you have given them no reason to trust your your side of the story. Um, you know, it's it's just a it's kind of a normy thing. Yeah, the, the late great Michael Brooks uh, made a great point once where he said. Um, that basically Joe, Joe Rogan and that type of person actually represents the real center mm -hmm. of America. Like that's the, that's the centrist viewpoint, yeah. which is uh, contradictory, confused, uh, distrustful of, of government. Uh, whereas we kind of think of like the New York Times and CNN as the centrist institutions, right. but they're actually not. No. Like they, they represent a, a different segment of, of the population that it, it's it's where it's the Rogan types that are right there in the middle. Um, There's and, wine and, mom centrism and Rogan centrism, right. and they have some Venn diagram overlap, but not a lot. And right, Jamal Bowman um, is a normal person. Yeah, like it was an independent before um, you know, before running for Congress. Um, he thinks for himself, uh, and that type of regular person in America is going to fall prey to some of these conspiracy theories. Yes. Like that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so when I saw that, it's like, didn't like necessarily like shock me. Checks out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and I think he like in the poem, maybe uh, commended Loose Change, which is an Alex Jones documentary. Because Alex Jones poem. sort of started on the left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with his, And that's how he got that's how he first got famous, right? He With was really popular on the sort of like fringe uh, left during the Iraq war uh, because he was questioning like the military industrial complex. So he, he definitely had a lot of reach. Yeah. And Loose Change was this YouTube documentary that um, just had a, was just an absolute phenom, like millions and millions of people mm -hmm. watched it. Um, and it has this like, you know, if, if you can capture somebody's attention for an hour and you can cherry pick, uh, you know, things, I'm sure people get mad at me too. Well, but uh, like the, the Building 7 people are going to be in our comments. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, but again, that is like one of the big problems here is that our government is not transparent when they always say yeah. that they're being transparent and we really can't trust what they say. So uh, like that's part of the issue is that even when, you know, through good journalism and other, uh, you know, sources of primary information or primary source information and footage and video like you can put the story together but um, again when the government who you should not trust is telling you trust us right. so Bowman is also facing an APAC backed challenger George Latimer Westchester County uh, executive his race could hinge on redistricting um, and so th this type of thing would be more damaging in in some parts of uh, New York than other parts of New York we'll, we'll see how uh, those lines get drawn, mm -hmm. you know, who, who comes out ahead there. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's move on to uh, Maria Salazar down in Miami. Let's take a trip down the coast. Give some, uh, give from, some credit to this local reporter here. From New York City uh, to Miami, where Republican Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar was grilled by a local CBS reporter about something that is actually very common uh, here in Washington, D.C. Watch this clip. Last month, you were at FIU and you presented a check for $650,000 to help small businesses at FIU. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, right? You voted against that bill. I, I, right now, you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I well, just you remember, did, did $400,000, but look, well, let's you, go. But you voted, against, you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? Listen, I, right now, I need, to, I need to ask my staff, but, you know, what if no, we look you, at you the $40 million that I have brought to this community? No, what's, well, Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you proud of the $40 million but that how I brought? Much, but how Aren't much? you proud that I wrote the Dignity Act? Haven't I, I, let's talk about the America's wait, Act. Wait, 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 let me, one second. Tell me. The money that you talk about, the $40 million that you bring back to the district, Sometimes that money comes from bills that you voted against. You voted against the CHIPS Act, and yet you praise the fact that the South Florida Climate Resilience Tech Hub is going to be started in Miami, right? You voted against the infrastructure bill, and you talk about all the money that comes back to the airport. So at the same time that you're taking credit for the money that you bring back to the district, in Washington, you're voting against these projects on party-line votes. 
Listen, I that was I think last cycle. I cannot really remember right now, but just look, just look at the America's Act, which is what I'm going to vote. So you don't want like to explain why I, you I vote really against cannot, I mean, right now, and I'm not trying to be a politician. There's so many bills that I've introduced that I know that no, no, many of them. These are bills that you me, voted against. The, that I understand, and but it's okay. Sometimes I vote bills. and sometimes I don't. But let's look at the positive. <laughs> I was just saying, I'm not trying to be a politician. Yeah. Uh, I also I love like the body, line, I need to talk to I like myself. her body language. She's just leaned back. She's chill the whole time. She's like, whatever. Yeah. So, sometimes I vote for it. Sometimes I don't. Who cares? The money's here. It's Well, okay, so there's a lot to... It's bugging me about it. For. Yeah, again, like, if you weren't watching this, the clip itself, again, this, was, this was a pretty viral clip, but her body language, Ryan, you're right. She just doesn't care because... <laughs> Actually, what a lot of people don't remember about Maria Alvarez Salazar is she had a really successful career as a journalist that she parlayed into her run for Congress. Um, and Let's she, roll some of her and uh, Fidel here. Yeah, so we have this VO. Uh, she's She was one of the few reporters ever to do an on-camera interview with Fidel Castro, one of the few American Looking reporters adversarial, ever. adversarial, yeah. Yeah, to do, and she did, yes, a very, and you can see if you're watching, you can see a very young Maria Alvaro Salazar. Uh, so Miami 80s there. Yeah, Miami 80s, grilling uh, Fidel Castro, um, and she's very proud of that interview. Um, I've heard her talk about it before. Fidel, you're taking credit for all of this infrastructure spending when you voted against it. You voted against it. <laughs> Actually, that's very funny. So, Rain, you've been covering this longer than I have. The uh, this is the oldest trick in the book: voting against the spending, uh, well, then and then later touting it yes, in your the, district. The Republicans did it a ton during Obama's stimulus too. Mm-hmm. Like universally opposed his stimulus, uh, but then of course when there's a ribbon cutting. You know, you can't keep a politician away from that because everybody likes when new stuff gets built. Oh, yeah. There's or there's like the and and again, like actually some politicians have in different cases legitimate uh, arguments here. Not that I agree with the arguments, but what they'll say is with the child tax credit that was passed in the Trump tax bill in 2017, Democrats negotiated on that uh, in the Senate side. And so they might say, you know, I helped get the child tax credit, even though they voted against the bill because they were involved in the backroom negotiations, you know, pushing for the child tax credit. And it's possible that Maria Alvaro Salazar was uh, pushing this pork to get into a bill she knew she would ultimately vote against, uh, just trying to make it and this was the excuse a lot during the Obama years, trying to make an inevitable bad bill as good as it possibly can be for your constituents. Um, I think if that was what happened, though, we probably would have heard her use that argument. Yeah, I love that she's like, I don't know how I voted on that. She doesn't that was, care. That was last cycle. That was last cycle. Come on, get out of here. That was last cycle. Don't you want to hear about the bill I've introduced that's, not, that's going nowhere? <laughs> like, can't we just talk about proud? that? Can't we just talk about that instead? She flipped it around. Yeah. Aren't you proud of this bill? It's called the America's Bill. Are you against the America's Bill? Yes. I mean, come on. What's wrong with you? Yes. She'll probably win in a romp, right? Uh, you know, that's. A, a, I think her her original win was pretty close, um, but she. I mean, once you're in, it's easier to stay in. Uh, the other thing is, you know, the. And that area is trending pretty red. She's also very friendly with leadership, so she's she was kind of elected in a cycle where there were a lot of like upstart Trumpy MAGA people, and I think she weirdly got lumped in with that because she was anti-socialist, uh, running in a, a heavily a Cuban district, and so she talked a lot about the kind of red meat socialism issue, but she's pretty friendly with leadership um, and and not exactly as red meat as a lot of people would have her, uh, would, would peg her. And that friendly with leadership part matters a lot in the reelection part because that determines where uh, some of the money goes. Yeah, she's gonna get that 400,000. FIU's gonna get that big check. 
Yeah, yeah, if I use it, <laughs> uh, we should we should see if she'll come on the show and talk to us about that. Actually, because she would be an interesting guest. She, uh, as a former journalist, is uh, she knows what she's doing on TV. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Ryan Grimm, Castro. What's the difference? Really? There you go. <laughs> it's a fine line between Ryan Grimm and Fidel Castro. There you go. As I always say. Good writer, right? Fidel. <laughs> sure, we'll give him that. Baseball fan. So, Eugene Carroll. Gotta see you this love clip. Eugene Carroll. So this clip of Eugene Carroll um, on MSNBC is worth watching because Donald Trump has eighty-three million dollars on the line. He was awarded she was she was awarded eighty-three million dollars uh, in damages in a defamation. On top of the suit. last defamation. Yes, on top of the last defamation. Um, but she she's not the best spokesperson for her own cause. And that has been the case basically since she made these allegations against Donald Trump. She kind of went back and forth on whether, on whether the allegations uh, constituted rape or not. Uh, people, people will remember that clip. She said, you know, I won't call it rape because there are women down at the border and I don't want to do a disservice to what other women are experiencing. She just it seems to be eccentric. We'll put it at that. Um, so let's take a look at that eccentrism that was on display in this interview with MSNBC. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, or, Rachel. Or, yes. Tell me. I had such, such great ideas <laughs> for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel... You and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely <laughs> new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Nothing. Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing nope. in France? No? Oh, all right, all right. Okay. That's a joke. That's her lawyer over there yeah. saying that's a joke. You heard her yeah. lawyer laughing nervously and then tacking on to the end of that answer, quote, that's a, a joke. Uh, her lawyer was on air with her, which was probably for the best. <laughs> Do you think she'll actually ever see Trump's money or is he going to figure out ways to not pay? I mean, the more she goes on media, the less opportunity she probably has to get that money because Donald Trump is appealing um, and Donald Trump is appealing the case. And this doesn't help at all. But uh, I mean, it, if if the judgment is affirmed, she could set the money on fire. If she, I mean, actually, I get, it's technically against federal law to burn money. You but, can't burn money. But <laughs> she could take Rachel Maddow fishing in France. Like, right? Who? It's not is the appeals court supposed to care what she does with the money? No, I mean, I, I think in theory, no. But I think does it help people with the credibility question when she says that? I, don't, I mean, I guess it depends on uh, how much of the media people see. And uh, they, they deemed her original allegation credible. So that and, and that, and by the, the way, jury did, too. Yeah, yeah. The, the jury deemed her original allegation to be credible. And that's how the defamation suit obviously was premised, is that she had a credible allegation. So what Donald Trump said about the allegation constituted defamation, defamation to the tune of 83 something million dollars. Now, there are also uh, one of the things that is included in Trump's appeal uh, is that um, they have the, the conflict with the judge. Did you see this? Um, so I'm reading from NBC News here. Uh, this is Trump's lawyer, Lena Haba. On Monday, filed a letter with the court in New York, citing a New York Post story that said U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan and Carroll attorney Roberta Kaplan, uh, who are not related, had worked at the major law firm Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Morton, and Garrison in the 1990s, an unidentified former partner at the firm, which employs around 1,000 lawyers, told the Post that Lewis 
uh, Kaplan had been, quote, like her mentor. And then Haba told the New York Post that the situation was, quote, insane and so incestuous, quote, this is news to us. She told the paper on Saturday, if you're an attorney and you're saying that's news to you this far into a case, probably not great. <laughs> well, Trump doesn't get good attorneys no. because he doesn't pay them. Yeah. And so... Yeah, he, you get what you pay for. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah, he, he gets complete hacks uh, who are just willing to work for him on the on the prayer that he'll somehow pay and on the hope that the uh, exposure will actually help him. Right. You remember for his uh, second impeachment, he had that slip and fall attorney from Philadelphia I who, do who just went and winged it on the Senate floor? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he doesn't get the, he's, they're not sending their best <laughs> to borrow a phrase. No. Um, and again, that that could be why, actually, if you go through the E. Jean Carroll stuff, we've talked about this a little bit, we don't need to litigate it. Uh, she did go back and forth on whether what happened constituted rape. She has the story about it happening in a busy department store in the middle of the day years ago. But in a dressing room. In an, yeah, although part of it, I think, was like pinned outside the dressing room and then into the dressing room. It's a, either way. Um, it, she's, she has gone back and forth on whether it was rape. Trump was, most hilariously undermined himself when he's, he, he likes to go around saying, as if it's a defense against uh, rape, that she's not my type. Yeah. Which yeah, bizarrely would... like concedes the, the fact that he would happily rape somebody yes. if it was, if they were his type. But then they showed him a picture of Eugene Carroll and he misidentified her as his wife. Right. So even his bizarre claim that, uh, you know, he didn't rape her because she wasn't my type fell apart when it's like he, he was caught like thinking that it was his wife. It's, Unless it, his wife's not his type. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's like, do, does anyone question that Donald Trump Not Melania, Ivana. Was, Ivana. Ivana, yeah, was like aggressive with women uh, at, the, at the very least. No, and that's like, again, it's just, these accusations. According to Trump himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like he'll, he will tell you that um, yeah. with with some pride. Um, but the, the accusations themselves are different than that question. Um, but again, jury said they found them credible. So uh, maybe that New York-based jury is just really, really favorable to Eugene Carroll and Trump has bad lawyers. And maybe that's how she does end up seeing those $83 million. I don't know, Ryan, that this is the thing that Trump, Trump even have 83 liquid million say, dollars? This is what he sues for, like, more than anything else. It would have to come else. out of his campaign money. I, I, 83.3 million dollars is a lot of money, um, and they're just competing reports about uh, Donald Trump's finances, obviously, so. Right, and Trump, remember, said he was going to work for free as president, mm -hmm. and then, and then uh, or then said he was going to donate his money, ended up just pocketing it. It's like the $400,000 salary, so... Raises questions about how actually liquid he he actually is if he needs to kind of, if he actually needed that uh, presidential salary that he claimed he wasn't going to take. Yes, uh, looks like we do have time to get to uh, the news out of both Pakistan um, and and Venezuela. So uh, yesterday, uh, Matt Miller at the State Department announced that we were snapping back sanctions mm -hmm. on on Venezuela. Uh, we had we had relieved sanctions on Venezuela in, in, uh, in a negotiation in order to get back some American uh, you know, prisoners that were held there. Uh, we wanted them to extradite somebody here. They extradited that, that person. Um, and they wanted some other kind of commitments around uh, election transparency, democracy, other, other reforms. Uh, 
Maduro then claimed that there was a coup attempt against him, arrested a bunch of people, and banned the opposition party, you know, heading into this, uh, an upcoming election. Uh, that ban of the opposition party was ratified by the Venezuelan courts, which will become relevant uh, in, this, in this segment later. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, over in Pakistan, which has an election on February 8th, uh, grassroots members of, of the PTI, which is the kind of the biggest kind of party, opposition party uh, in Pakistan, are just being arrested en masse when they when they uh, sign up just to run for like lower level offices. Uh, and the opposition party leader, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, earlier this week was sentenced to 10 years in a totally bogus uh, case around uh, the, mis the alleged mishandling of a, of a classified document that we actually published over yes. at the Intercept. He was not our source. Uh, he had nothing to do. He had nothing to do with it. Uh, they never proved he did. It was complete uh, kangaroo nonsense. Um, and then uh, today they uh, sentenced him to an additional 14 years for uh, another completely ridiculous case. This one is called is like a state gifts case. So for background, uh, Imran Khan was a famous cricketer. Uh, extraordinarily wealthy. Um, his next phase in his career after cricket was as a philanthropist. That's how he became um, doubly popular uh, in, in Pakistan, you know, building hospitals, universities, etc. And so then they charged him with uh, taking gifts from, from like foreign, like say, say Pakistan goes on a, you know, Pakistan prime minister Bob goes, McDonald. goes to like uh, Bangladesh and, and they give him like some gift, like a watch or something. Yep. They, they, are accusing him of like keeping this stuff illegally. He says he did all the paperwork. The idea that a guy who is like massively rich and a philanthropist is trying to like pilfer a watch right. is as absurd as you can imagine. Uh, he's tried in secret, like nothing about the case made any sense. Uh, and so, and they're banning him from running for office for 10 years and essentially banning the PTI from the ballot. Um, it's, it's complicated the way that the court did it. The State Department, meanwhile, no sanctions whatsoever. Uh, so yesterday at the uh, State Department briefing, there were a lot of questions that were uh, thrown at Matt Miller about this. And here, here's how I, I framed it to him, and here's his response. Because you said earlier that that's a matter for the Pakistani courts. When it came to Venezuela, that's a political matter, it seems. The Venezuelan courts, of course, approved you know, Maduro's banning of the party. Now, you could say that court is under Maduro's thumb. It's a kangaroo court. But in Pakistan, the prosecution was held in secret. Uh, just recently, the, the, his attorney, Imran Khan's attorneys, were kept out of the courtroom, and they took attorneys from the prosecution team and made him and put them on the defense team. Like the, nothing about uh, that prosecution seems less than kangaroo. So why would? Venezuela's be a political case, but when it comes to Pakistan, that's a matter for the Pakistani courts. So there are different situations, and we have not yet made that conclusion with respect to the Pakistani legal process. Uh, when you look at Venezuela, um, we are looking at the entire history of the Maduro regime in cracking down uh, on democracy and, most importantly in this case, failing to carry out the commitments that they made to allow candidates to run. Um, uh, it's a commitment that they made that the country has reneged on, and that's why we were able to make the assessment in that case. So there might still be a determination on the Pakistan question. I, I just don't, I, I don't have anything to preview, but it's not one that we've made at this time. So Matt Lee, okay, yeah. So Matt Lee, um, the AP reporter, followed up immediately after this and said, "Wait a minute. So Venezuela uh, does not have independent courts, you, but 
is, are you saying that Pakistan does? Right. He's like, uh, and he said, my phone's dying here, but if I looked up the State Department's human rights report on Pakistan, would I find that the State <laughs> Department feels like uh, the Pakistani courts are completely independent and trustworthy? What um, would we do as a country without him in those briefings? I know. It's, it's, it's fun to watch him. I'm glad um, you're in there now, too. You started going a lot more frequently. Yeah, it's, 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 great. it's great to be in there. They're, they're very, they're, no, they're, they don't necessarily answer the questions, but it, you know you can you can you can put things to them and hear and, and hear how they respond. So the the if people are actually wondering what the difference is, yes, you know Venezuela is a is an adversary. You know Maduro is an adversary of the United States, and the military-backed government in Pakistan is an ally of mm-hmm. the United States. And Imran Khan was seen to be either adversarial or too neutral. Um, and we wanted him to cooperate on uh, weapons production right. because we were in a hot war with Russia. Yeah, he he, he famously uh, uh, gave a gave this uh, speech to a large rally in response to the EU demanding um, and the U.S. you know privately demanding that Pakistan support Ukraine and not and not take what the U.S. called aggressive neutrality mm-hmm. when it came to <laughs> Ukraine and Russia. He gave a speech where he said, "We are not your slaves." And that kind of rhetoric um, j- chafes the West. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? Right. You, know, you do you do what you're told. And now he's in prison. How has October 7th given Imran Khan's, Khan's uh, relationship with uh, the, the broader sort of Muslim world and, and his sort of followers, his base, how has that shifted how the State Department treats Imran Khan's base and support yeah, I mean, in Pakistan? Perhaps uh, second to Erdogan, but not... But actually, maybe not. Like Imran Khan was probably the most popular Muslim elected official in the world, mm-hmm. um, because you know Erdogan was not also a famous cricketer, on, to- on top of everything that else that uh, that Khan did. Don't give him any ideas. And so, yeah, and so, so Khan, uh, if Imran Khan you know were in power now, he, he would be kind of a loud voice uh, when it when it came to the yes. Israel Gaza question. Instead, he's you know, com- completely uh, muzzled. Mm-hmm. I, I just said one of the least discussed but most important uh, sort of subplots to the hot wars happening right now in geopolitics. Yeah, and we, we interviewed the, uh, the Pakistani uh, ambassador over at The Intercept uh, for the uh, podcast Intercepted and Deconstructed. The Pakistani uh, ambassador to the United Nations, U- UN permanent representative, and we asked him about Israel-Gaza. He actually had served under Khan and serves under the current government. Um, and, he, and he was like, look, uh, the Palestinian cause is extremely popular mm-hmm. in Pakistan. Because mm-hmm. um, I, And I asked him uh, you know, what he, why Pakistan hadn't joined the uh, coalition, you know, battling the Houthis. He's like, that would, he's like, that would be just completely untenable for us to do. Mm-hmm. Like the, what the Houthis are doing um, is, is popular in, in Pakistan. Yep. Um, but the, the Pakistani government isn't, isn't being vocal about any of that. Because, Less aggressive neutrality. Yes, like yes, exactly. Passive neutrality. <laughs> well, I'm really glad we had time to get to this story. And again, Me too. I'm so glad they're yeah. going to those briefings and we get to uh, watch them respond, even when it's a non-answer. A lot of non-answers are super helpful. Oh, should be one later today. I'll be there. 
All right, we'll be watching for that, and maybe we'll have something to talk about next week, Ryan, when we're back with uh, CounterPoints in a week from now on Wednesday. Again, remember to subscribe, because if you subscribe to the premium version of the show, you get all of CounterPoints right in your inbox. You get it early, you get the full video, uh, as opposed to the few videos that uh, are, are posted to the channel throughout the day on Wednesday. That one's the full show. So if you're a premium subscriber, uh, if you're not a premium subscriber, make sure to do that. We appreciate it so much. It supports uh, the work that we are so privileged to be able to do here. There might still be 25% off. Don't hold me to it's that. It's a surprise, though. Yeah. Go, go check breakingpoints.com. No, it is. We're told, we're told still, yes. Still is 25% off. Go get it quick, though. All right. Well, we'll see you guys back here next week. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.